Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, I'm speaking with Diana Skelton. Diana is part of the national coordination team of ATD Fourth World in the UK. ATD Fourth World is a human rights-based organization that works to tackle poverty and inequality and to promote social justice in the UK and across the world. Diana has been with ATD Fourth World since 1986 and has worked in the US, Madagascar and France before joining the team in the UK. We talk about the work of ATD Fourth World in the UK and about the importance of amplifying voices of those with lived experiences of poverty everywhere. Diana, thank you very much for joining this podcast. We're here in the premises of ATD Fourth World in London. For those who don't know ATD Fourth World, could you say a little about the organization and what you do? The term ATD is for All Together in Dignity, and that encapsulates our spirit, but of course not what we actually do. And what we do comes from how we were founded. Uh, so ATD Fourth World was founded by a man named Joseph Rosinski, who grew up not only in poverty, but really uh, very deep exclusion. He was um, actually born in internment camp because this was during World War I in France. And his mother was from Spain, but his father, who was Polish, had left Poland at a time it was occupied by Germany. So they were considered enemy citizens and the conditions in that camp were so difficult that Joseph Rosinski had a sister who died of malnutrition there. Now, even after the war, when his family was no longer in the camp, their lives, they were really struggling. And Joseph Rosinski's memory uh, in his childhood was that um, so his mother at one point was alone raising four children. And there were some people in the town who offered her charity and support, but in ways that sometimes humiliated her deeply. So that was really what he came to founding ATD Fourth World with to think solutions need to come from people. And the sort of founding principle of ATD Fourth World, and we work in about 33 countries now, it's always to seek out people who are struggling the most in low-income communities, because you always have people in a low-income community who might be very dynamic, who might be succeeding, but you have others whose voices are not heard. And we believe that it's their experience and intelligence that we need to really transform society. Um, so that's, that's our approach. Uh-huh. And so you work in 33 countries. Where did it originate? We're in the UK now, but where did it all start? So it started uh, in France in 1957 in an emergency housing camp outside of Paris. There was a real housing crisis in France following World War II and Rosinski um, discovered this situation and saw so much in common with his own childhood and basically with the families there founded what would turn into altogether in dignity fourth world and there there wasn't a strategy from the beginning to say oh we're going to country x or y but what Rosinski was really convinced of was that in every country whether it's rich or poor there are some people who are struggling a lot and also that in every country there are some people who are trying to support people who are left out because of poverty. And so little by little, you know, he would hear of or meet and then stay in touch with people in a lot of different countries who are doing a lot of different things. 
And that approach of trying to, first of all, understand what exists in a country, how people in poverty are resisting, and what support they might have, that also informs our approach. So an example um, in Burkina Faso, there's many children who are living homeless in the streets of the capital city. And ATD Fourth World has been working with those children for a very long time. But before starting any kind of project, just getting to know the children made it possible to discover, well, actually, there's a tailor who saves scraps of fabric because he knows that the children need to mend their clothes. There's a nurse that the children know when she's off duty, they can go to her and she'll help disinfect their wounds. And it, that solidarity can be uh, hidden if a big development project comes in with something thought out someplace else. What we want to do is find and build on all those acts of solidarity that exist. Mm -hmm. And can you give some examples of work that you're doing here in, in London or in the UK more broadly at the moment? Yes. So we have two overarching programs. One that's called Together in Dignity is based on to some extent, crisis support, uh, when families in poverty are going through a crisis, developing networks of peer support and offering opportunities of respite, vacation, family activity days, um, all kinds of different projects. And then the other broad program is called Giving Poverty a Voice, which is much more around advocacy and includes things like the participatory research project that we just concluded on understanding poverty in all its forms where people with lived experience of poverty together with academics and people with uh, learned experience of poverty through work in uh, teaching or in healthcare were collaborating together to design research questions and analyze them and really try to unpack what it means to be in poverty in Britain today. So talking about the research project, uh, poverty in all its forms, what were some of the main findings generally or that stood out for you? There's a big one that's around shame and stigmatization, stereotypes. And I should say this research, we did a piece here in Britain. It was part of a wider project in a total of six countries. Um, so that particular finding was similar in Bangladesh, in France, Tanzania, Bolivia, and the United States, that when you're in poverty, there's so much that you know builds stigmatization from society and also in in people's own lives, you grow up always hearing your family, your parents, your ancestors spoken about like they're less than nothing. And it really shapes how you see your own future uh, and how you relate to people. So trying to overcome that is one of our big focuses. And were there things that co-researchers pulled out as particularly important to highlight from their own lived experience of poverty? Yes, so there were people with lived experience of poverty who were the co-researchers guiding it, and then also people who were consultant in the research. There were mixed groups. So there were some groups that were specifically of people with lived experience of poverty, some that were specifically not, people who maybe had a more professional experience of encountering people in poverty through their work. Looking at all the findings, uh, there was all different kinds of experience coming into that, and also academic research to really pull out which findings are the most significant. And so another uh, very important one, for example, was the effect on poverty damaging health and well-being, including mental health. Just all of the <clears throat> mental energy that it takes when you're struggling and when, you know, every single day 
there's danger and there's really painful situations and how it shortens your life. That, that was really one that was a very visceral reaction of all the, the co-researchers discovering the depth of this. Um, and often poverty is measured or understood in terms of how much income people have. Was this something that also came up in the research? Was it considered maybe not to be so important or just as a means to an end? So the findings here in Britain are broken down into six different dimensions, and mm -hmm. one of them is financial insecurity and exclusion. Not having enough money in and of itself is a problem. What was really striking to me was how many aspects of that came out, uh, that financial exclusion, it might mean uh, difficulty of getting credit, it might mean the poverty premium where you're paying more for things because you can't pay very much at a time or you have to pay in cash. But it means many more things than that. So for example, um, parents would say financial exclusion is when you know your children are never invited to parties because they're not gonna bring a good gift. Or it's when you can never go out for a drink with friends because you're not gonna be able to pay for them to have a drink. Examples were given of when you're online in the grocery store, but then actually it turns out you don't have money on your card that you thought you would and you're not able to pay for what you have and everybody on the line behind you uh, is angry at you and you're humiliated. All those things are financial exclusion that goes further than just the amount of money. Do you feel that, that this research, but also of course other work that goes years back, has been able to counter this idea that poverty is people's own fault and, and, and people are to blame for their own situation? Has it been able to reach audiences that hold those very sort of strong beliefs about poverty? It's a gradual process. I think it makes a difference that the people who are bringing the message are often people with that lived experience of poverty themselves. After public events, we've had people come up to say, you know, what a strong personal connection they felt with somebody who was speaking from their own personal experience. These are conversations that don't take place ordinarily. You know, many people may feel troubled by the fact that there are homeless people here in London, but to actually be able to have an in-depth, meaningful conversation with somebody who has a very different life experience than you do, it generally doesn't happen. And our experience is that when you can make that possible, that's when people start thinking about things in different ways. So we try to make that possible uh, whenever we can. We just watched a short video about the research and I think the event during which the research findings were disseminated. And one of the ladies spoke about how there's a need to rehumanize people rather than dehumanize people living in poverty, which I thought was a really nice way of framing it. And it sounded like the research managed to do that by telling people's personal stories. I think so. And personal stories that also have added weight because they're put together with other people's personal stories and in a framework where you can see that it's not just individual, that it's not a question about one person managing to be more resilient than someone else, but there are disempowering systems in place, systems that treat people as numbers, but each person's story can really help for society to see we're not living in the kind of society that we would want. Everyone wants to have a more compassionate and caring society. We have all different political ideas about how to get there, but I think that Rehumanizing is something we can all agree on. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned um, that ATD Fourth World Works 
in, in many countries across the world. Can you say a little bit more about how your approach may differ or whether there are certain things that are the same everywhere you, you are and certain things that are more adapted to the national or local context? Mm. So in some ways, almost everything we do begins very locally because we do make decisions from the ground up. But for example, something we have in common everywhere is that we're really seeking out people who are in the worst situations to make decisions with them. And that we're also always challenging ourselves, you know, no matter what project we have, and we, we run a lot of different projects, they might be around adults coming together and thinking about a certain issue uh, in order to advocate, they might be a cultural project for children, and so on. But no matter what project we're doing, we always want to stop and think about who might not be included in that project and why, and to seek out people who might have the hardest time ever being included in any project and, and to design it with them. So those, those are things in common. And so you, you gave an example from Burkina Faso. Is there any other work at the moment that really stands out for you across the world? So the, the research on understanding poverty in all its forms was something international. And there's a second piece of international research that we're hoping to start uh, in the coming years around the impact of poverty on family life and ways that poverty separates children, which looks different in different countries. Here in Britain, it may often be connected to social services and to the calculation of risk. You know, no one wants a child to be at risk of harm, but there's not a lot of funding for support services when a family is going through a crisis of any kind. So the question about you know, when a child needs to be removed into temporary foster care or into long-term adoption the calculations right now in Britain seem to us very disconnected from the realities of how poverty impacts the life of an entire family and not a situation where children are maybe being made to live something more difficult than their parents. In a country like the Philippines, what we see is sometimes similar to what happens in Britain, except that it's not public social services. It's a private charity, a non-governmental organization that may come from North America or Western Europe with a certain mindset that some children would be better off in an international adoption um, or in an orphanage than with their parents. That's a mindset that also speaks very much to, I was talking about the stigmatization earlier that people feel. It's very hard if you're struggling as a parent to put decent meals on the table to resist when someone says, well, actually your child's going to be much better off with other parents. How, how do you respond to that? This is a question that we've worked on in past years in a lot of different ways in different countries, but we'd like to do international research on that in the coming years. In doing that research and working with people, how do you work with that issue in the sense that the example that you gave uh, here in, in the UK, it's a very systematic problem, essentially, where um, there's not enough services, decisions are being made probably by social workers who don't have enough time and resources to, to sit down properly with families, etc. In finding these issues in the research, how do you then engage with those systematic issues that mm. you might not be able to tackle on your own or even with a group, a small group of people? It's very challenging. So here in Britain, for about 15 years now, ATD Fourth World's been involved in social worker training, going into universities where social workers are studying, bringing parents with lived experience of poverty to speak to social workers. At the beginning, that process was a little bit adversarial because it is so painful and conflictual, but that was not productive. And so we had parents in poverty who were realizing 
we needed to find something a little bit more constructive and to understand social workers at the end of the day, as you were saying, are struggling with very, very small budgets. And social workers and parents want the same thing, which is a good outcome for children. But how do we get there? It is a real challenge. And in your global work, do you see a particular advantage of learning across your work in different countries and learning about lived experiences of poverty across, say, the UK and the US and Burkina Faso and the Philippines? Because certainly we tend to think in terms of high income and then maybe mm. lower income and middle income countries, as sort of two different worlds where poverty looks different. But in your global experience, are there overlaps, but maybe also particular differences? There are many overlaps, for example, in terms of stigmatization and shame that exist everywhere. Robert Walker did research on the shame of poverty, which he found on a whole variety of different continents to slightly greater or lesser degrees, but he found it in every country where he looked for it. One of the reasons that we work so internationally is because people with lived experience of poverty in whatever country they're in, the shame and stereotyping there has been the same usually for many generations. It's very hardwired into our societies but it also looks different in each country. And so when people with lived experience of poverty come together internationally, we find it really helps people unlock doors in their own minds, how, how you see yourself and your own possibilities in your future to realize, oh, the, the same thing is happening over on that continent, but in a different way. It also shows you that things can be different and that society doesn't need to be the way it has always been. It's on a different level. It's also important to us that we work internationally because of what I was saying about how poverty separates parents and children. There are a lot of ideas that travel around the world, sometimes through international institutions, through individuals who have money to travel, through nonprofit organizations, but it tends to be certain people who are traveling and spreading certain ideas and other people stay in their own country because they not only don't have a passport or a visa, they may not have an identity card in their own country. So that's that's one of the biggest challenges that we have to working internationally, but we try to bring together people with lived experience of poverty from different countries very, very frequently. And one of the things that I think you also do very effectively is then to bring these lived experiences to audiences that are pretty far removed from those lived experiences. So like, for example, at the UN, what is the value for you as an organization to go to, say, for example, the UN in New York, to bring not only research findings, but also people with lived experiences to tell their stories? The United Nations is an extraordinary place because as an institution, it really does speak to being we the peoples, all the people in the world, and it has these aspirations for overcoming poverty, for creating social justice, creating world peace. That speaks on a very deep level to people in extreme poverty who often with very, very little reason to believe that tomorrow will be any better than today, still people have a very high aspiration that you know something else is possible somehow. So from the very beginning, ATD Fourth World has always looked to the United Nations as a very special place where we could have certain dialogues. At the same time, it's really complicated. You get people around a table who have completely different life experience, completely different vocabulary, 
I remember once somebody speaking at the United Nations, a young man who'd with great difficulty escaped war zone. And the questions he was being asked was, well, you know, why didn't you try harder to save your sister's life? There seemed to be this huge disconnect between his experience and that of people asking him questions. There's a lot of different things that make it really hard for people to understand each other. So one of our kind of only tools that we have is time, trying to get people in the same room for as much time as possible or for as frequently as possible, and that people can just really take the time to hear each other um, and to understand each other. Is there anything else that you would like to say or share about the work or about what people should know about living in poverty that is not known enough or talked about enough? Well, I'll tell you uh, something that is inspiring to me, which comes from a woman named Amanda. She was speaking recently about how poverty can, can strip away your dignity and destroy your soul. But at the same time, she spoke about the way that we can work together as something that can restore your soul. And so that, that really inspires me to try and live up to uh, Amanda's aspiration for we can restore each other's souls. Great. Thank you so much, Diana. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more information about ATD Fourth World and the research that was discussed in this episode on our website, poverty-unpacked.org. If you like this episode, follow us on social media for regular updates. We hope you will join us again next time.